Radican, Chief of Defence Staff from the United Kingdom, Major General Jong Hae-il, President of the Korea National Defence University, South Korea, Reinhard Butterkofer, Member of the European Parliament of Germany, Andrew Shearer, Director General Office of the National Intelligence of Australia, and Gudrun Wacker, Senior Fellow of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, Germany. Now, the world's attention has rightly been focused on Ukraine for the past few months, but it's the important consequences of that conflict that may well be played out in the Indo-Pacific, as China and the countries of the region absorb the lessons from the war. Ukraine has certainly given Taiwan a template in resistance and previewed the kinds of weapons the Western world is prepared to use to prevent China should it attempt to attack Taiwan. The long war in Ukraine may also once again prove that the West could become distracted away from China, just as it did uh, when it was conducting the war on terror post 9-11. I'd like to begin with you, Admiral. Can you just tell us what the military implications of Ukraine is for the Indo-Pacific? So, um, good evening, Yalda, and good evening, everybody. So it's, um, I should say it's a delight to be uh, back at the Racina Dialogue. And, uh, we were joking just beforehand. Two years ago, I was on a, on a panel being quizzed by Yalda previously, and I, I, I'm still back here. So um, I think there are, I think we have to be cautious with the Ukraine conflict because it's still ongoing. And I think at times there is a rush to, to try to come to all kinds of conclusions. So some of my conclusions are inevitably quite generic. And I think they're, they're substantial ones that apply not just to the Indo-Pacific, they actually apply to the whole world. And that really is the significance of what's going on. The first one would be that strategic errors lead to strategic consequences. Now, that's a, kind of a, a glimpse of the blinding obvious, but it's absolutely what is happening in Ukraine. And what Russia has done is a catastrophic error and then that has implications all across the world, and it has severe implications for Russia. I think the second aspect, which absolutely applies to, to this region and to the Indo-Pacific, is the clarity around that boring phrase of uh, a rules-based international order, well, actually, rules matter, and you're seeing that rules matter in the way that the world has responded. And that, that has real impact on militaries and how they consider the use of force and what the implications are when you use that force. And I think at the strategic level, what the implications are when you transgress the international rules of the world. And then that really leads on to my third point, which is the importance of allies and partners and the confidence that we should take that when nations transgress, and when the world responds, it's the world that is more powerful than individual nations, and we should have enormous confidence in the, the unity, the clarity, the power that partners and allies can bring, and how that impacts both at the strategic level, but at the operational level, all the way down to the tactical level. And that's what you're seeing in Ukraine. The pressure on Russia, in terms of Rus the Russian state, the operational impact in terms of what is happening on the ground in Ukraine and the implications for Euro-Atlantic security. And then at the tactical level, you're seeing support for Ukrainian armed forces, you're seeing magnificent uh, Ukrainian armed forces and their response, and then how that impacts back up the chain in terms of Russia. So there are all kinds of consequences. But but those... I just want to pick up on that point about alliances and, and the kind of... Um, a strategic allegiance that the West has shown when it's come to uh, the conflict in Ukraine. As far as the Russians are concerned, sure, there are sanctions, but it hasn't stopped the bombs. It, it, it hasn't stopped the bombs, but I think we have to be really careful of, of that kind of uh, approach that says, well, actually, I'm going, I'm going to look for the nth degree of everything to be, uh, to be resolved. I think, you know, sticking still with my, this is, this is a conflict that is ongoing. When Russia 
went into Ukraine. They were going in to occupy the whole of Ukraine. They went in with a, a bogus uh, supposition that they wanted to, to respond to uh, what they saw as being the threat of, of NATO. They wanted to try and hook it in Ukraine and ensure that it couldn't, it couldn't travel to the West. It couldn't, in the future, have an aspiration for the EU and, and it would deny any aspirations in terms of NATO. The complete opposite has happened. Um, Russia has lost the Ukrainian population and will, they, they, will not, they will not be hooked in to Russia. Um, they, they will look increasingly westwards. NATO has responded in a magnificent fashion. NATO is more unified than I've ever known in my whole career. And then there's this debate, an extraordinary strategic debate, about Finland and Sweden and might they join NATO. And those, so, so those are things that have happened in such a short period of time, which but, ordinarily but, but would have brought, taken years. And it's brought NATO together. But I was just in Ukraine, Admiral, and what I continue to hear from the Ukrainian people, we are grateful and thank you for the military hardware you're supplying us, but we feel a sense of abandonment here. We've asked for a no-fly zone, we've asked for tanks, and none of these things have been delivered to us. So I, I think the, the other piece that goes with Ukraine and the, the response of NATO uh, and the response of, of uh, other nations around the world is, is an honesty about some of the complexities of the, the conflict in Ukraine. And that is being incredibly honest about ensuring that the response in Ukraine doesn't escalate the situation and we acknowledge the seriousness of this and that we don't start to track down a conflict that would involve NATO in direct combat operations with Russia and that's been a political imperative that has been imposed from the very outset and, it, and, and I can understand the frustrations uh, with our Ukrainian friends and we deal with, with some of those Ukrainian generals directly so so, but that is, that is a, a constraint uh, that is being applied and is being applied honestly. And then to your other point about the support that's being given to Ukraine, there is an extraordinary level of support that's being given to Ukraine. And if you, if you, if you track to what Russia is saying, there are, you know, Russia is criticizing the level of support that's being given to Ukraine. And, you know, so I think the success of the Ukrainian armed forces is again, is testament to their own courage, to their, their ingenuity, their political leadership, the fact that they're fighting for their country, but it also reflects the support that's been given by a whole series of nations. If this is a long war, and we don't know how long it's going to last, two weeks, 10 years, is that to China's advantage? Because again, the West is distracted from the China question, the China issue. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of hogging. No, we, uh, the, we've got plenty of time. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so I, I think we've got to be really careful about um, the, the, these conclusions in terms of China. This, this is a conflict with Russia. The UK position is 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 very different. In our integrated review, uh, we declared Russia as an acute threat. And we made a, a clear <coughs> distinction about the language in terms of China as a competitor and, and as a challenge. I think the, the pieces to me for China to absorb and for all of us to absorb, again, is going up higher, is that this world order, these international rules, um, when you transgress those international rules, it leads to all kinds of consequences. And when you invoke war, War is this ugly, unpredictable beast, and it leads to, again, a whole series of other consequences. And, and, and here we are, just um, a couple of months into this, at one level, relatively contained conflict in Eastern Europe, and yet the global impact, whether it's energy prices, food prices, the sanctions on Russia, the impact on the world economy, as well as the, the shocking impact on people in Ukraine and displaced people as well as the deaths and destruction are enormous. 
And I think if you're, if you're any other nation and you're contemplating the use of force and you're doing that in such a hideous way, which is a transgression of international law and is clearly illegitimate, then the reaction of the world and the implications and the unpredictability of this, the, the, the shocking miscalculation by Russia, who I, I, I assume um, was being told by, you know, Putin was being told by his generals, by his intelligence specialists, by his economists that actually you're, you preserved your economy, you've got a war chest, you can do this. Your military saying you can go and do this and we'll, we'll do it quickly. Um, the intelligence saying, actually, we think we've worked it out. It's, it, it's back to a truism of, 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 of war and its unpredictable nature and the, 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 the caution that has to be applied when you use force in this manner and especially when you use it in such an illegitimate fashion. And I think, I think all nations will be absorbing that and it's, it's a constraint on how nations will act. Andrew, I'm going to come to the, the China challenge again, because you're someone who um, has been a China watcher and focused on the China challenge before it was even fashionable. This past month, the Solomon Islands signed a pact with China. What's China up to? Well, Yalda, um, in my view, China's objective is now increasingly clear, and that is... Uh, China wants to be the world's leading power, wants to supplant the United States in that, in that number one position. And on the way to achieving that global objective, it needs to establish dominance in, in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific. And to do that, it's bringing together all the arms of state power in a very coordinated strategy uh, economic inducements, investment, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, but it's also using military power, cyber power, uh, foreign interference in other countries to build out a position of influence right across the region. Uh, that includes uh, an ambition to establish a network of dual use and military facilities right across the Indo-Pacific from the west coast of Africa into the Pacific. And our concern about the agreement that was recently signed, uh, notwithstanding a lot of concern in the region, I was up there uh, just a couple of weeks ago, lots of concern in the region about the implications of an increased Chinese security and uh, defence presence uh, in the Pacific. Um, uh, but that agreement has, has gone ahead and um, we we will be watching, we will be uh, working... Why, why did it go ahead? I mean, was it an intelligence failure on your part? Um, before we came out here, I tried to get Yalda to go <laughs> easy on a compatriot, and um, as, you can, as you can tell, that didn't that work. Didn't work. Um, it, it wasn't an intelligence failure. Uh, this this uh, strategy has been unfolding for a number of years. I think for those of us watching closely, uh, there were signs of this well over a decade ago, um, and we've seen this building, uh, this building presence across the Indo-Pacific. We've seen uh, China moving into the security uh, relationships across the Pacific in a more active way. I think when. The pandemic was at its height. It was harder, in a way, for all of us to be to be present in the region. As regional countries open up, China has exploited the the reopening. It's it's very active. Again, it's using all of the uh, the considerable instruments of power at its disposal. That includes Chinese companies, state-owned enterprises, uh, Chinese diplomacy, Chinese uh, defence attaches, the whole panoply of Chinese power being uh, being deployed in a targeted way in these very small, very fragile, very vulnerable countries. But it's not like Australia didn't have influence over the Solomons. If you go back way, way back to the 90s, they dealt with um, the, the riots and security issues then. The Australian police have always been involved in providing security. That happened again in the, the early 2000s when we had the, the Ramsey Agreement and, and that task force again a few months ago. 
So to say that China is just trying to spread its sphere of influence and putting everything in its power to, you know, to almost seduce these smaller Pacific nations, Australia has been doing that. So what's gone wrong here with this pact? Why did it go ahead? What you say about our contribution in the Pacific and particularly in the Solomons is very true. We've invested uh, billions of dollars in, uh, in uh, development assistance and security assistance to Solomon Islands. Um, we've got personnel on the ground today as we speak. Uh, we responded within eight hours of receiving a request from the Solomon Island government. Um, we, we made a decision and we had troops and police on the ground within 24 hours of that Could request. we see Chinese troops on the ground in the Solomons? Uh, we, uh, we are already seeing Chinese police on the ground in, in small numbers and our concern is that this agreement potentially opens the way to a more persistent Chinese military presence in Solomon Islands. Could yes. that, if, if the Chinese police are trying to control one part of a, a town or a village or an area and the Australian police are trying to do something else, could that put them in direct conflict? Unity of command is, a, is a, always desirable in any security operation and confusion around unity of command is an issue. We are also concerned that in such a fragile, volatile country, uh, Chinese policing techniques and tactics that we've seen deployed so ruthlessly in Hong Kong, for example, are completely inconsistent with the Pacific way of resolving issues uh, and, and could incite further instability and violence in the Solomon Islands. That's one of our biggest concerns. So what is it then that China wants? China wants a region where countries comply with its strategic preferences and choices and don't make their own choices. And that's why our efforts are so directed at helping countries in the Pacific and Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific more broadly defend their own sovereignty and protect their own sovereignty. Um, Australia's not a perfect partner for these countries. We've made a big investment. I think our motives are, are pure and have been pure for decades. Um, but, um, but we accept these countries making their own choices. What we can't accept is an outside power influencing the choices of these countries China wants a region where it has uh, sustained military presence, uh, where it can complicate US military operations and Australia's military operations and make those more difficult in a crisis. And that's why our concerns around persistent military presence are so, so real. Reinhard, I'm, I'm just going to come to you, um, because with this conflict in Ukraine, the one thing that, that Germany, Europe has realized is its dependence, the strategic blunder that's its dependence on Russian oil and gas. Now, if we look at the China question, which, by the way, has, has caused uh, the sort of dragging of, of feet as far as Germany is concerned when it has come to sanctions, would you, if, if there was a, a situation where we saw war with China, would you say you would be in the same sort of strategic blunder and position where you'd be reluctant to impose any kind of sanctions on China because, again, you'd be dependent? Well, I would not assume that we're not going to learn anything from what we're experiencing. And, uh, in fact, the EU has started dealing with dependencies on China way before we were forced to acknowledge how biting and how crippling the kind of dependency that we developed on Russia can be. If you look at the EU's trade policy over the last six years, we have developed a number of trade defense instruments that are designed to reduce the dependency. Um, the, um, the EU has also uh, reshaped its general understanding of the relationship that we are developing and that we have with the PRC. 
in 2019, this complicated multidimensional relationship was described as, at the same time, a partnership, a competition, and a systemic rivalry. At the moment, in the European institutions, there is a consensus that we are now way into rivalry territory and that the basic reality, the basic truth with regard to that relationship is that we are indeed systemic rivals. And that means two things. That it's not just a rivalry between the two governance systems of democracy and authoritarianism. At the same time, it's also a uh, systemic rivalry between a, uh, what's been called a rules-based, multilateralist, liberal international order and the resurgence of big power politics. So I think we didn't start from zero. Uh, and the lesson that uh, we have to learn still, because we cannot just turn on a heel to, to wean ourselves from the gas dependency that has been built over 20 years. Um, but there's now a willingness to do that. And we have had discussions in, in, and that, that's very interesting, I would say, in the three important China communities that we have, in the uh, business community, in the uh, national security community, and in the human rights community, we have had discussions that not being as dependent on China as we are inclined to be, even though our exports to China are about a fourth of what Australia's are. Uh, still, we, are, we saw when we, when we were looking for PPE at the beginning of the pandemic, how dependent we were. We know that we're dependent on rare earth and, and a couple of other strategic minerals. I think we're already in the process of transitioning away from that. In the government circles, the awareness of these challenges is, I would say, much more developed than it is at the moment with some MNCs. But when you look at the business community in a broader sense, there is a lot of support for a new trajectory. In fact, it was the German Federation of Industry that first came out in uh, January of 2019 with a strategy paper on China that defined China in much more critical terms than any strategy paper you had seen from Europe before. But, but if we talk about the lessons, if you want to talk about the lessons learned in Ukraine, right now billions have gone into Russia as a result of oil and gas, something that you continue to, to pay for. Uh, and that is fueling the funds for the war in Ukraine. So it's one thing using the rhetoric and, and using language like values, and, and, and it's our values. But as far as the Ukrainian people are concerned, that hasn't stopped. You continue to fund the war for, for the Russians. So we can talk about the lessons learned, but, but I just wonder, you know, how quickly have those lessons well, really been learned? Look, we don't have a time machine. We can, can't go back in time. So we have to apply the lessons that we're learning in what we're doing in the future, right? And there are a couple of lessons, uh, and I, I put them very in, in very generic terms. One lesson is that if you're confronted with an imperialist opponent, then you should take them at their word. A lot of people around Europe didn't take Putin at his word when he pointed out his designs on Ukraine. And I think the uh, Communist Party emperor in China is not less ruthless than the Russian Tsar is. So we should also take Xi Jinping at his word, number one. Number two, appeasement in such a confrontation leads to war. And number three, if you want to deter 
And of course, I would have preferred that we would have been able to deter Putin, but if you want to deter, you have to start early. We started deterring with half-baked measures very late in the day, after Putin had already concentrated his troops along the Ukrainian border. That effort should have started at least in 2014. So when we try to learn, looking forward to what we might encounter with China, I think we have to learn the lesson that we have to start thinking about deterrence, for instance, of an attack from the PRC on Taiwan or any of their other neighbors, how, how we can effectively but, but, but can influence the, the framework conditions under which they operate before they get close to that. But right now, today, Germany is not prepared to, to sanction Russian oil and gas. Today, Germany has taken steps that have a momentous um, importance. Up until January, a majority in our country was in favor of Nord Stream 2. I have been a consistent opponent for years, but sometimes very lonely. Now we've sh shut it down. Uh, until January, nobody in Germany, regardless from which party, was willing to supply armaments to the Ukrainians uh, in case they would be attacked. Now we are supplying armaments. We're even, that was the decision of, I think, today or yesterday, we're even exporting tanks to, uh, to Ukraine to help them. We have um, formulated the policy that says we will um, wean ourselves from Russian coal by August, from Russian oil before the end of the year, and from Russian gas before 2024. For a country that, at the moment, gets 50% of its coal, 35% of its oil, and 55% of its gas from Russia, that's quite an ambitious turnaround. I would be willing to cut off, to embargo oil um, from Russia immediately. The government probably has to be a bit more cautious than a parliamentarian can be. They would rather err on the side of caution, I guess, than on the side of audacity. Because if they get it wrong and if there is an industrial meltdown, that is not going to weaken Putin. That's going to weaken us and that might create so much internal strife that we might not even be able to sustain the policies that we have now moved forward to. So I think we're on a very good trajectory, even though I belong to those critics of the government that always push for doing more. We have asked for supplying tanks for a couple of weeks. Now it's happening. The, but for the, for the country, this has been an hour of, I would say, geopolitical awakening. The Chancellor called it a Zeitenwende, a historic turning point. And Germany had been very reluctant to uh, accept, for instance, NATO's 2% GDP goal. Now the government has pledged, with the support of the parliament, to um, um, spend 2% plus every year on defense. So I would not say that it, it's uh, adequate to just describe Germany as a country that is dragging its feet. We're not leading as much as we should, together with France and Poland and others. I mean, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, the war crimes continue, the bombs continue, and, and Germany is not willing to take swift action. So they do feel you are dragging your feet. But I just want to bring Forgive in... me, that is not correct. The decisions are taken within NATO, and the decisions are taken within the EU. But and Germany not is a, one of the countries... It is not a fact that Germany blocks all those decisions. That is what some people peddle, but it's not the truth. 
Okay, I'm just going to bring in uh, Gudrun into the conversation because I want to pick up on, on what we've just talked about. This idea of values, believing in something, believing in freedom, believing in, in, in democracy. And yet, something that I continue to hear in Ukraine and, and most recently when I was there and also in Afghanistan when I was there in December was this sense that the West talks about these things but they're not willing to fight for them. That at the end of the day, they can send these weapons in but there is this sense of abandonment. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I think we have to cooperate with other countries based on values, yes, but also on interests. And this is true for every country. This is true for India. This is true for the European Union. And actually, if you look at the Indo-Pacific strategy of the European Union, it says we will strengthen our partnerships in the region based on values or interests. For the Germans, it's a huge step to even admit that we do have national interests until recently we did not admit to have. Um, but I want to say something very fundamental because um, until a few years ago, we all believed that economic interdependence is a stabilizing factor in international relations. All of us did. You know, we admitted China to the WTO in the hope that this would kind of integrate them in a better way. And especially in this part of the world, a lot of talk was about even if you have political conflicts, the economic interdependence makes sure that the price is too high to go forward on the conflict part. But this belief has been destroyed, and not only by what Russia did in Ukraine. It has been destroyed over the last years pretty systematically by several actors, and China is obviously one of them. If you start to weaponize economic relations, if you start to weaponize trade, and China has a pretty sophisticated toolbox, how to do that? That's part of what Andrew was talking about, these gray zone activities, you know. Um, so there is disinformation, there is the luring of countries with the promise of investment. So you have, um, basically, you have sticks and carrots and over the last years, we see China pulling out more sticks than carrots. All the carrots have proven not so tasty to the countries they were offered to. And, and this is the world we live in, but it takes a while for this realization to sink in and then act on it. And this is to, up to all of us. And I mean, China is still the biggest trading partner of India when I last looked. Australia has not weaned itself from the uh, dependency on China. I'm saying that um, should China, or in the event that China attacks Taiwan, the West will be as unprepared in terms of how tangled it is economically with China as it has been, well, certainly in the case of Europe, uh, with, with Russia. Well, the first issue we have to debate is how likely is it that China attacks Taiwan. It's I know not unthinkable, that there, though. I know that there is this scenario, and it has been uh, discussed quite a bit, especially in the U.S., and also we have to think through in Europe what we would do in such a case. That's, that's clear. But I think to come back to what conclusions China will draw from the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, we're not there yet. They're observing very closely what is going on, and I think already they saw several surprising things. One surprise was the unity of the West and the swiftness with which the sanctions were decided, you know, and Germany not blocking them. <laughs> and the other surprising thing is the resistance in Ukraine. Maybe Xi Jinping was told by Putin the same kind of narrative that Putin uh, promised at home. We go in, this will be a surgical operation, we will be welcomed as liberators, and after a week everything is over. But this has not happened. And now, I mean, if Russia ends up 
being really economically crippled in the long term, China will not be the winner because it will be the only target left of the U.S. for one. A, a view that I continue to hear in India and in this part of the world is that, in fact, it was Europe and the West that should be blamed for this crisis and conflict in Ukraine, that they, so to speak, poked the bear. I just want to get your response to that. I wouldn't say that the West has not made any mistakes in the 90s after the demise of the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the last person who does not admit, admit that we often apply double standards and we are hypocritical and everything, but double wrong does not make right. This is one thing I want to say. And if you, in a way, this is the narrative that Russia is rolling out. Basically, it's the fault of NATO, eastward enlargement, and of the United States, because NATO, of course, is only a puppet of, of uh, the United States. And uh, that, you know, with NATO at Russia's doorstep, they had no choice. This narrative is pretty much embraced in this country, where we are right now. And the Chinese are go one step further. They not only embrace the narrative, they actively promote it especially in Southeast Asia and this part of the world. So they, they, um, the media also uh, amplified this message on Ukraine wanting to develop uh, nuclear weapons, the, the story about the biochemical weapons. So all amplified, the messages amplified by the Chinese media. And this, this narrative that it's all NATO's fault I think, you know, the situation we are in now, um, it's still clear that Russia breached international law. It doesn't accept the borders of a sovereign country. It invaded Ukraine, and that's a fact. And if you look at the kind of security architecture we believed to have in Europe, yes, the O. SCE is, you know, not very effective anymore. NATO is not inclusive. And there was this institution of the NATO-Russia Council, which somehow never worked when there was some conflict between NATO and Russia. But does this mean, and, and I think it's really a matter of perception, and I think India should think about whether you would apply the same logic to China. If China starts to argue, we are threatened so much by the Quad and AUKUS and, you know, NATO now talking about China, we have no choice. Because this is basically Russia's argument. Does this justify that you invade another country? And the case of Taiwan, of course, is even more tricky because the majority of the world does not recognize Taiwan as a sovereign country. So what does this mean, for example, for the UN? Would we even be able to discuss the issue at the UN level? Or would we be thrown back to, to our own deliberations in other formats like the G7, for example? Major General, I'm, I'm going to bring you into the com uh, conversation. Just with the question of competition between China and other regional countries, would it be fair to say that South Korea is perceived to be on the sidelines? Uh, so, uh, comparing to Germany, we are, South Korea is very lucky because we didn't import the Russian gas or oil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the uh, South Korean, uh, so far, the South Korean uh, government policy is to try to maintain the balancing uh, position between the China and the U.S. Because the uh, uh, Indian uh, Pacific strategy and one belt and one road is, is conflicting in Northeast Asia. And also the North Korea uh, tried to test the nuclear uh, missiles. So uh, South Korea has maintained the uh, good economic relationship with the China. And instead of the economics, we uh, try to uh, good relationship between U.S. But 
in a, in a recently, because of the Ukraine conflict, uh, our uh, president-elect uh, Yoon, he who will uh, in, inaugurate the two weeks later, uh, he changed uh, the. The new government changed the, our position would be. So he, uh, yesterday he announced that uh, South Korea is trying to examine the, to join the, the Quad or AUKUS and everything to strength, strengthening the uh, U.S., in India and strategic. Uh, US, Sorry, India so did, you, did you say that South Korea should join? The quad. Would join, yes, but uh, President Yoon is officially announced yesterday we will uh, examine to join the uh, uh, quad. So our position will be changed. South Korean government uh, position will be changed. Uh, uh, so far, we try to maintain the good uh, economic relationships with China, but the Ukraine. Uh, situations we are uh, we can learn the change in the uh, stressing of realism in the world so we have to uh, uh, need the good uh, military and eco economic relations with the in India and Pacific strategy with the uh, US instead of China is there um, some kind of timeline for for when you would consider or want to discuss being part of the quad Taiwan no, for South Korea. Timeline. 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 No, I, I, I don't know yet, yet. but uh, uh, now the new uh, president-elect, uh, their, their government is trying to uh, join very, uh, maybe this year or next year. Okay. I'm, okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious we've got three minutes and there's probably a lot of questions um, in the room. Um, so I'm going to take uh, three questions. The mics are uh, just in front. Uh, I'll take them all at the one time and then we'll put, put it to the panel. Uh, so if you have questions, please feel free. I believe there's one back there. Yeah, please go ahead. Introduce yourself and your question. Um, hello, my name is Elizabeth. I'm also part of the Racina Young Fellows and I do have a question primarily for all of you. I was wondering, um, talking about poking the bear, um, the European Union also, well, has been asked, or Ukraine wants to join the European Union, and uh, a couple of days ago, the Austrian foreign minister also, well, expressed kind of criticism or cautiousness about this idea, because the conflict will not be resolved anytime soon, and even then, we have to ask ourselves how this is going to impact the relationship with Russia. So I would be, was wondering what's your position in this regard. And the second question, we're very much and very often hearing about strategic autonomy, but I was also wondering why don't we more often hear about um, strategic coherence? So that I mean the, the military um, aspirations on the one hand, but um, we are also kind of increasing our um, economic um, interdependencies one more time, this time in a diversified manner and with other countries. But in a long-term perspective, I was wondering why, especially after 2014, it was not clear to the European Union, especially and also to Germany, that this kind of economic uh, dependence was kind of contradictory. So this kind of incoherence this term strategic coherence should be used and applied more often. So what's your, I would be interested, what's your position in this regard? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll take one question there and then there, and, and I'll put it back. Yeah, just there. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Uh, my name is Dr. Fyodor Wojtolowski. I'm from IMMO, Russian Academy of Sciences. I have a question uh, addressed uh, to anybody who will be ready to answer. Uh, we have heard a lot about how Russia is guilty how it should uh, respond for what it, it has done in Ukraine here. But, uh, and a lot of words how to support Ukraine fighting uh, against Russia. But nobody said about any said about diplomatic solutions for this crisis. And how do you see what can be done in this sphere? How we can resolve this crisis by diplomatic means? Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And just one there. Okay, I am Dr. Shen uh, from Taiwan, I am DSR. DSR. Uh, we can see that uh, after Ukraine war, after Ukraine war, uh, maybe uh, two years ago, uh, many generals and many experts uh, predict that uh, uh, Taiwan's threat will become war, 
uh, maybe one, one year later, or maybe two years, maybe 2027. But after Ukraine war, I, I'd like to ask uh, maybe Dr. Uh, Gudran uh, Walker or maybe uh, Admiral, uh, because we can see that a general uh, from U.S. said uh, maybe 2035, uh, China will invade uh, uh, Taiwan. What do you think the timeline that uh, China will invade Taiwan? Uh, we can see recently uh, Xi Jinping may be in trouble in his uh, 2020 party congress uh, power arrangement, uh, or maybe in the Shanghai, uh, my colleague uh, said uh, recently uh, mentioned about that Shanghai uh, pandemic control. You can see that a different faction of power struggle in Shanghai city. Yeah. So, so your uh, what do you think that sure. uh, this okay. situation will affect that uh, China invade? Taiwan, Taiwan timeline. Uh, okay, thank you. Got it. Um, uh, so the first question uh, was about poking the bear and Ukraine joining uh, the EU and, and the sort of implications of that. Um, perhaps uh, Reinhard, you can you can answer that. Sure. I would predict that in the European institutions there will probably be a decision before this summer break that Ukraine will be granted candidate status. That does not imply that next year there will be a, a member, but the accession mechanism is so flexible that it can be speeded up according to the progress that we're making. So I, I say this because in several, in two council meetings since the beginning of the war, for the first time, the European Council indicated that not only would they um, promise the Ukrainians some vague participation in the European family of nations somewhere in the future, but that they pledged to support Ukraine's accession. So that is, I think, uh, a new trajectory uh, that we're uh, that we're engaging on, and if I can answer the second yes. question from Elizabeth, also, the term strategic autonomy is becoming less prominent and less attractive around Europe, uh, because um, in a time when you have to understand that in in tackling the challenges from some authoritarian regimes, you better team up with, with your friends and partners. Navel-gazing is not necessarily the best answer. In the German context, we are not talking about strategic autonomy in the new government. We're talking about two terms, strategic sovereignty of Europe and pulling together more closely and strategic solidarity with democracies and like-minded countries. Okay, we've just got a couple of minutes, but we, I, I'd like these two questions answered. Uh, one was um, uh, about political solutions, diplomatic solutions uh, for this conflict in Ukraine. I don't know who wants to answer that one. I, I, um, maybe I can offer a dull answer, which is... Um, I, I, I think that has to be dominated by Ukraine and how Ukraine sees this conflict and what it demands. And the, 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 the fact that Ukraine is fighting for its sovereignty and its very survival gives it such prominence. And, and just to answer the other question, I think even on the EU piece, even as, as, as somebody from a, a nation that is no longer a member of the EU, again, this is about Ukraine being able to choose whether or not it wants to apply to join the EU. Uh, and, and I would also just add on the strategic coherence point, there, there has been phenomenal strategic coherence in the way that the world has responded to the Ukraine conflict. So all the instruments of power are being used in a very classical way. So whether that's diplomatic, economic power, the, the use of the military instrument and, and the use of information and, and cultural and social issues, I think this is, this is an example of surprisingly strategic coherence in the way that the world has responded. Thank you, Admiral. And, and finally, Andrew, I, I wonder, you know, we, this question about whether there's a timeline for when China potentially attacks Taiwan. 
So, Yalda, our assessment is that Beijing's overwhelming preference is to take control of Taiwan without using kinetic military force. And at the moment, what we see is Beijing using economic coercion, cyber attacks, political interference, incursions by PLA warships and aircraft into uh, Taiwan, the space around Taiwan to put pressure on the Taiwan government so that um, desirably, from Beijing's point of view, Taiwan comes to the negotiating table on Beijing's terms. That's overwhelmingly what they're trying to achieve. But there's no question that they are working uh, very, very hard to give themselves a military option as well, even though it's not their preference. Uh, we see the development of a massive range of sophisticated weapon systems. One of our concerns flowing from the situation in Ukraine is that the importance of nuclear weapons is actually being reinforced to China. The importance of subduing an enemy quickly is being reinforced. But, but by the same token, the difficulties that the Russian military has faced, um, as Tony said, should be giving serious pause to people in Beijing about the complexity of an operation to seize Taiwan. And the hardest operation in warfare is a contested amphibious landing. And it's possible with sensible policy decisions in Taipei and support from international partners that the, the military problem of, of seizing Taiwan can be made incredibly complex and difficult and that there can be more time put into that timeline. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you could please thank my panelists. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.